I want to thank Grayson for that reading, and we are actually only going to cover about half of what he read this morning. I just wanted to provide a little extra context and extend the reading just a little bit. I really wanted to get to the end of Hebrews chapter 10 today, but there's just so much to talk about, so much to learn, and just don't have time to do it all. So we're just going to cover about six verses this morning, and I hope that what I've prepared can be helpful to you in some way. We are now into this bottom section here of our chart where we're talking about the warning that he gives uh, based in this section on the Levitical priesthood. And as we've covered how Christ is superior to all these things, the writer of Hebrews is going to sort of wrap up his thoughts on the superiority of Christ. And what we have remaining in the book of Hebrews is, is action items and what this should cause us to, to do and to be and to say and to think and how we should walk in this life. And so we have a therefore sermon. Um, I hope that you haven't grown tired of the book of Hebrews. I hope that uh, you found it as encouraging as I have. Uh, but if you find yourself kind of getting bogged down in the, the minutiae and the details that we've talked about in the last several uh, sermons, when we talk about the law of Moses and the temp- temple and tabernacle and the sacrifices, I know some of that can seem a little monotonous, but the writer is building to a point here, and now we have a therefore sermon that actually gives us some action items, much like the book of Ephesians, where the first half is theology and theory, and then later on, okay, now this is, that was the why, this is the how and the what. And so we're getting more into that in the book of Hebrews now. If you remember last time, this projector's not working. If you remember last time, we talked about the offering of Jesus, and we talked about how the offering of Jesus ratified and empowered the new covenant, uh, how it brought it, made it uh, worth something to us, how we, the, the offering of Jesus was once for all. It wasn't a repeated sacrifice where Jesus has to suffer over and over and over. The offering of Jesus was planned and appointed by God. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an afterthought, but rather God planned it before the foundation of the world. And finally, that the offering of Jesus accomplished God's divine purpose. It was effective in doing what God wanted it to do, and that is to reconcile us to him. And before we move into the meat of this this morning, I want to draw your attention to what we call an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device used in Scripture to frame an idea or a concept, sort of a bookend or to encapsulate, if you will, a thought. And this inclusio begins in Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer brings up the idea of Christ as our high priest. And you can see the phrases that I have highlighted here that are very similar, and that's what an inclusio is. It's a word or phrases that begin a thought and a concept and then show that the writer has concluded talking about that. And it's used all throughout Scripture. We don't have time to show a lot of examples of that this morning. But we have this phrase, since then we have a great high priest. It's repeated over there, since we have a great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. With confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace. We have confidence to enter the holy places. So the writer is beginning here in chapter 4, introducing this idea of Jesus as our great high priest. And now he's concluding here in chapter 10 and showing that he has encapsulated everything that he's talked about in 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all relates together in this argument of Christ as our great high priest. And so we have these two statements here, these since statements. Since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. And these, you might even think about this in logical terms of we have a great high priest over the house of God because, or we have confidence because we have that great high priest. 
because Jesus, and he's just spent the last seven or eight chapters showing us that, showing us that Jesus is our great high priest and how we can have confidence, you know, and since that's true and he's proved it's true, therefore, here's what you need to do. This is what we need, how we need to respond to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. And we have three action items that he gives us here. These are let us statements. I've heard someone refer to this as the salad section of Hebrews because there's a lot of lettuce here. But there's a lot also, I like, I like meat on my salads. I like, I like steak or chicken on my salad. There's a lot of meat in this salad as well. First of all, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Number two, let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And finally, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. And you may also notice nested within this is the very biblical concept of faith, hope, and love. If you were here a few weeks ago, Carrie talked about the, how prevalent this message of faith, hope, and love is in Scripture. And coincidentally, or probably not coincidentally, Hebrews chapter, chapters 11, 12, and 13 deal with faith, hope, and love, respectively. And we'll get into more of that later. So here's the first verse we want to consider this morning. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of drawing near to God is very prevalent in the book of Hebrews. And the writer has used this phrase several times throughout. We're not going to read all these passages, but notice how many times he references this idea of drawing near to God or drawing near to the throne of grace. That means we're in fellowship with him. We have an intimate relationship. When you draw near to someone, you get close to them, and you know them, and you understand them, and they understand you. And the writer is encouraging us to draw near to God. But notice he doesn't bring up this concept until chapter 4, which is where he introduces this idea of our great high priest. And the reason for that is simple. Without Jesus as our great high priest, we can't draw near to God. We can't come near to the throne of grace. We can't approach him in the way that we really need to without Jesus as our great high priest and what he accomplished in that. So we, he says, I want you to, because Jesus is your great high priest, I want you to draw near to God. And he says, I want you to draw near to God with a true heart. What does it mean to draw near to God with a true heart? Well, it means an honest heart. An honest heart as we approach God. And what is that for? What does that mean? We need to acknowledge who we are. We need to come to God with the knowledge and the acknowledgement of, I'm a sinner. I have weaknesses. I have frailties. I have problems. And God is the one that I need to take care of all that. But this isn't about informing God of anything. We understand that. What does God not know about us? What information do we have to give to God? In Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What have you ever done or said or thought that God doesn't know about? The answer is nothing. And so coming to God with a true heart, with an honest heart, is not about God's benefit. 
It's about us acknowledging ourselves for our own benefit. Us realizing, I am a worthless sinner. I need God. And approaching Him with an honest heart that acknowledges that, that, that I have nothing to bring except an empty cup. In Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is someone that God can take and work with. Someone that's willing to say, I need you. Lord, I need you. A broken spirit, a contrite heart. Coming to God with that kind of heart, a heart that acknowledges. God doesn't, God doesn't need us to tell us who we are. He knows that. But we need to acknowledge that before God if he's able to work with us. So next he says, we need to come to God with, God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, how in the world are we supposed to do that? If I'm coming before God with a true heart, acknowledging who I am as a sinner and my weaknesses and my frailties, if I'm acknowledging, how can I do that in full assurance of faith and have confidence? Well, he's already told us how, we, how he does that. It's through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, there's another let us statement, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is how we draw near to God with a true heart, but also having full assurance of faith. We do it knowing that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, knowing that he stands before God on our behalf, knowing that he understands everything we've ever been through, every temptation we've ever had, yet he did it without sin. And so he stands before God, his blood having been offered on our behalf. And we can find grace there. And that's how we can have full assurance of faith. We can have full assurance because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You may remember back in Hebrews chapter 9 when we talked about the law of Moses and the dedication of the tabernacle and how Moses sprinkled blood on there. In Hebrews chapter 9 he says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of these ashes, if, if all that could serve to, to be some sort of modicum of sanctification under the law of Moses, how much more do you think the blood of Christ has power to sprinkle clean our evil conscience? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We are sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we're sprinkled clean. And that's how we can have full assurance of faith. Well, how does that happen? When does that happen? You know, Moses, when he read the law to the people, and they said, okay, we're going to do it. And he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. He sprinkled it on the altar, all the implements of the, of the tabernacle. The blood of Jesus exists only at the throne of God. I believe it still does exist. He offered it there. It's an eternal offering. But the blood of Jesus doesn't exist on this earth. We're not physically, literally sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. How does that happen? Well, he tells us how it happens. Hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, a lot of people in this world have an, an aversion to the idea of baptism being involved 
in our salvation. It's, it's a work, and you know, God says we don't have to work for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. That's a completely different sermon, but understand the relationship here. There's nothing else he can be referring to when it comes to having our, our conscience sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the scripture in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Where did Jesus shed his blood? It was in his death. The Roman soldier came to Jesus uh, going to break his legs to hasten his death. Well, he was already dead, and so he pierced his side, and out came blood and water. That's when Jesus shed his blood. We are baptized, Paul says, into his death. Because that's where he shed his blood. And it's his blood that sprinkles us clean. In 1 Peter chapter 3.21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, or corresponds to the fact that Noah and his house were saved by water, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Take out this phrase, which corresponds to this, and just read it. He's saying, Baptism now saves you. It can't be any clearer than that. Baptism now saves you. But it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for what? For a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we have the death of Christ. We're baptized into his death. And baptism saves us as we are raised to walk in newness of life by the resurrection of Jesus. And so we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience through baptism. And so this is how we can draw near to God. We can do so with a true heart, an honest heart, that acknowledges who we are and our need for Christ. We do so with the full assurance of faith, knowing that Jesus is our great high priest and has paid the price. And we know that our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus when we obey him in baptism. And that's how we draw near to God. Number two, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This idea of holding fast um, is, again, pretty prevalent in Hebrews, as we'll see in a minute. But it sort of harkens back to something that can happen under the Old Covenant, and that is people would come to the temple or the tabernacle, and, and they would seek, seek sanctuary there. And they would go to the altar in the courtyard, and they would lay hold their hands on the corners, on the horns of the altar, and they would claim sanctuary. We have an example of that in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 51 and 52. There's this man named Adonijah who was sort of a pretender to the throne as Solomon was getting ready to take over uh, the kingship from David. And this man, Adonijah, had his own designs for the throne. But eventually he realized this isn't happening. So he goes to the, to the, t- to the tabernacle and he lays hold, it says, He has laid hold of the horns of the altar. And he's saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. I'm going to let you go and read the story on your own. It's pretty interesting. But this man claimed sanctuary. He laid hold of the altar. I want Solomon to swear to me that he won't kill me. He was seeking sanctuary. He He had something to hold on to. And this idea of holding fast is very important to the writer of Hebrews. He talks about it in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, about holding fast our confidence. He talks in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 14, hold fast our confession. Again, in uh, chapter 6, verse 18, hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast. Hold on to it. Cling to it. Don't let go. Seek sanctuary there. 
Paul uses this same word, or this same phrase, rather, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the gospel and its saving power, and its power to continually or perpetually save us. He says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if what? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in me. Hold fast to the gospel. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Hold fast the confession of our hope. What's the confession of our hope? Our confession of who Jesus is to us and what he means to us. And we had a baptism here Wednesday night, and there was a public confession that was made. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, I do. That public confession is important, but more important than that, or as important, I would say, is what's going on on the inside of us. You know, I can be baptized... And it doesn't mean anything because I don't believe what I'm doing. I'm not submitting. I'm just getting wet. And I can say anything. I can say I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But that doesn't mean I really believe it. It doesn't mean it's true. It's what goes on on the inside. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. Yes, the confession is important, but it's more than words. It's more than just saying it. He says, if you believe in your heart, you got to believe it. You got to know it. And it's more than just the mental consent that Jesus is the Son of God. It's He's my only hope. He's my He's the only hope I have. There's no other way to heaven but through Christ. And brethren, we got to hold on to that. We got to hold fast to it. Take hold of it and not let it go. Just like Adonijah in the court of the tabernacle. Don't let go. Jesus Christ is our only hope. And so he says you can have that hope without wavering. In other words, without hesitating, without doubting, without fearing. How can we do that? Because he who promised is faithful. The one who made the promise is faithful. You may remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, we talked about this quite a bit, and God, and the promise that he made to Abraham, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And I love this passage in Hebrews 6, verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You know, God made that promise to Abraham, and the promise should have been enough. God keeps his promises. But God, he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That's you and I and all other saints throughout the years. He wanted us to know the unchangeable character of his purpose. He wanted us to know that promise would be kept. And so he made an oath. He guaranteed his promise, which he didn't need to do, but he did it anyway. He did it with an oath. And so in those two things that are unchangeable, they're unchangeable, why? Because God can't lie. He who promised is faithful. And because of that, those of us that flee for refuge, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast. Hold fast to that hope. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. For he who promised is faithful. 
And we need to hold fast to that confession of hope in our own lives. Number three, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We hold fast to the confession of our hope. He says, I now want you to stir up one another to love and good works. This phrase to stir up one another is pretty interesting. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Um, here's the Strong's definition to that. Notice the, the definition at the bottom, an inciting or an incitement or an irritation. And if it's one thing that people are good at, whether it's people in the church or people outside, we're good at irritating each other, aren't we? We're good at stirring the pot. I think the King James says to provoke one another. That's an accurate translation, to provoke one another. But he's not telling us to just poke the bear and find ways to annoy one another and get on each other's nerves. He says, you need to be among each other and stir up one another for what? For love and good works. Yep. Incidentally, the only other time this phrase is used in the New Testament is between uh, the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So it's definitely a... It's, it's used, I don't know if it's used tongue-in-cheek in the book of Hebrews. I suspect it might be. But basically he's saying, y'all need to, to get it up in each other's grills and make each other love each other and do good things. That's what you need to do. He's, he's not wanting us to just poke the bear. He wants us to do, have love and good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's not talking about our birth here, our creation as human beings. He's talking about our recreation, our rebirth in Christ. You were recreated in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's the part of a Christian. We need to love one another and we're to do good works. But you know, the decision to become a Christian, though it's an individual and personal decision, I had to make that decision for myself. You had to make that decision for yourself. That's kind of where the individuality ends for a Christian. That's where the solo flight ends. Yes, we have to make that choice personally. No one can make it for you. But that's where the kind of solo Christianity ends, if you can even call it that, because there were a lot of people involved in my conversion. I was, yes, I was raised in the church, but my family taught me about Jesus. They taught me the gospel. I didn't do it, come to it alone. And the idea here is to stir up one another. And you read nothing in Scripture about Christianity on your own. There's no going it alone. There's no Scripture you can find in the New Testament, the Old Testament, that doing this on your own is the best way to do it. Being in church doesn't make me a Christian any more than being in a garage makes me a mechanic. You ever heard that phrase? I've heard it before. It's true as far as it goes, I suppose. But you know, I, I don't want a mechanic that doesn't have a garage or at least the tools to do the job. We hired a mechanic a while back at the house to come over to our house in our driveway and replace our radiator. He didn't have a garage, but he had all the tools. And I would dare say that most mechanics that don't have a garage, I'm not going to take my car to him necessarily. But that's really a, a moot point in any case. There is no scripture that indicates we can do this alone, and there's no scripture that indicates the public assembly isn't important. 
Notice this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This isn't Christianity in an efficiency apartment. This is Christianity in the household, the mansion of God. We're all in this together. We're brothers and sisters. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All in this together. Fellow citizens, members of the household, joined together, growing, built together. We don't do this alone. This phrase, not neglecting to meet together, this, the, the meet together there very much carries a connotation of the public assembly. You know, some people might say, well, I can, you know, I can meet fellow Christians on the golf course, or I can meet fellow Christians at the coffee shop or uh, on my bass boat. That's how I can meet together with fellow Christians. Come on. <laughs> really? He wants us to meet together in corporate worship and time together. Kind of like us coming to God with a true heart. and Kind of like having this idea of not informing God of anything. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need us to worship him. He wants us to, but he doesn't need it. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. God doesn't need our worship, but he wants it. You know, and when the Pharisees approached Jesus and said, why don't you tell your disciples to be quiet? Jesus said, if these should remain silent, the stones and the rocks would cry out. God's going to be worshipped, whether you worship him or not. And so we consider this idea of corporate worship. So let's talk about this guy. I know you're all very curious. This is the elephant in the room. Okay. So sometimes we talk about uncomfortable things or things that we might think well, are, I don't know, just a little bit uncomfortable maybe. And well, this adds a little bit of levity to it or not, but... You know, sometimes we, we ask ourselves questions like, well, how often does God expect me to come to church? What am I really obligated to do? You know, I think most people would agree, well, we're obligated to be here on the first day of the week and take part of the Lord's Supper. But I don't like approaching this from the, from the concept of obligation. Like I'm checking a box. Like God is sitting up on his throne, and he's got this ginormous clipboard with every Christian's name on it, and he's taking roll every Sunday or every time the doors are opened. It's not about that. You know, well, okay, I've, I've come Sunday morning, and I partake of the Lord's Supper, and I meet my obligation. Okay, fine. That's fine. And my object or objective this morning is not to try to shame or guilt anyone who may come to Sunday morning and not come Sunday afternoon or not come Wednesday evening. I don't want anybody to do that out of guilt because that's not why God wants us to worship him. He wants us to worship him because we want to be here. 
Much like what Trevor talked about last week about our generosity and our giving. And, you know, we make statements like, well, we're not commanded to tithe in the New Testament, so therefore I can give whatever I want. And we use that as an excuse to give less. Well, I'm only obligated to be here for communion. That's really all I'm obligated for. I've even heard Christians or people who profess to be Christians say, well, I think it's sinful to come to the other worship assemblies because we don't observe communion at those. Sounds like a lot of excuses to me. And my, again, my intent this morning is not to try to guilt or shame anyone, but to maybe make you think a little bit. And to understand when we ask the question, what am I obligated to do? We're asking the wrong question. Why would I not want to be here to meet together, to encourage one another? You know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he gives his gospel sermon. And 3,000 people are baptized into Christ. And he said, okay, we'll see you all next Sunday. That's not what happened. Acts 2, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number, day by day, those who were being saved. Daily they were together. Daily they were worshiping. Daily they were praising. Daily they were fellowshipping. Daily people were being saved and added to the church. Just a few things for us to think about. And he concludes by saying, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you know this, this phrase, the day, uh, the word day is not capitalized in the Greek. So that's, you know, that's sort of translator's choice in most translations as far as I can tell. Um, but what's he referring to there as, as you see the day approaching? Well, if you consider the context of the book of Hebrews, when it was written, who it was written to, I think the day he has in mind here is the destruction of Jerusalem. I won't be dogmatic about that and plant a stake in the ground or anything like that, but I don't know what else it could be, what, whatever, whatever the day is. Um, Jesus had prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. He'd given signs to his people. It's pretty clear from history that the Christians in the first century uh, paid attention to those warnings and those signs. Uh, Josephus, the historian, records the fact that there, there weren't really any Christians in Jerusalem when it was destroyed, that they had heeded the warnings of Christ and they've got out of Dodge. Um, so I think this was very much on their minds. And I think the view that he had in mind is, hey, this day is coming, and you guys, y'all are clinging to this law of Moses. You're clinging to this temple, these sacrifices, and it's all about to be done away with. And you need to forget about that. You need to cling to Christ, draw near to God through him. You need to meet together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, because you need that encouragement. You need to be encouraged. What am I really missing by being at the assembly? I don't feel good tonight kind of tired. I know I'm not going to get much out of this. Maybe it's not about what you can get out of it. Maybe it's about what I can get out of you being here. Maybe it's about what everybody can get out of everyone else being here. It's encouraging one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The end of the world, maybe, fine, if you want to look at it that way. Who knows when that's going to be? But we look around us and we see all kinds of chaos in this world. All kinds of evil. All kinds of, we look at this world and Everybody's like, we got to fix this. 
We've got to fix the Titanic. We've got to bail water with a solo cup to try to save the Titanic. No, let's get off the boat. Let's find a lifeboat, and that lifeboat is Jesus Christ. And let's draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's do that. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stir up love and good works in one another. And let's meet together in the assembly. Let's meet together in our homes and have fellowship with one another. Let's go out into the community and take Jesus to the lost. Let's do that together. What great encouragement the writer of Hebrews gives us as he lays this wonderful argument, if you want to call it that, up until this point. And therefore, let's do these things. What's the alternative? What's the alternative to drawing near and holding fast and stirring up one another? Well, he says in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, which is what happens when we don't draw near to God through Christ, when we don't hold fast, when we don't stir one up, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Remember, there is no plan B. If you don't draw near to God, if you don't hold fast to your confession of hope, if you don't help one another, you've rejected Christ. And there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else that can help you. What's left? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our only hope. The only way we have any kind of hope in this world is because of Jesus Christ. There's no plan B. Have you made the decision in your life to draw near to God? If you have never made that commitment, we urge you to do that today. Take this opportunity to make that confession of hope and to put your full confidence and faith in the blood of Jesus. Having your conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, by having your body washed in pure water, not to cleanse the filth of the flesh, but to faithfully submit to God's will in baptism. Do that today. If you want to do that, if you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come while we stand and sing.